Welcome everybody to season three, episode seven of The Chosen, of Joan's Take on The Chosen. We will be talking about episode seven, which is called Ears to Hear. And this episode sets up a lot for the next episode. It was with the next episode as kind of the finale of the season. So we're going to really try to limit ourselves to episode seven and talking about episode seven without talking about episode eight, which can be a little difficult as we saw in the first two episodes, same thing happened, right? Like we wanted to talk about one and two as a whole because many of us saw them together in the theater that way. But I'm going to really limit us to talking about episode seven so that Thursday then we could talk about episode eight. This was not my favorite episode of the season, I have to admit. I think partly because a lot of it was setting things up for episode eight and as i'll talk about later in the in the episode i'm going to be a little hard on them i think there were some plot lines that didn't belong maybe in this season maybe could have waited um, but we will we'll launch into that in a second the opening of this episode opens with gyrus telling the story of esther to prepare us for um, the 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 holiday of purim um, Purim is a Jewish holiday. It's one of the holidays that they celebrate along with Hanukkah that has um, roots in scripture, but is not one of the holy days set out by the Lord in the Mosaic Covenant. So Purim comes later. The story is found in Esther. And we have then the, op- the, the episode opening with both Jairus and Zebedee talking about the establishment of the holiday. And so they're quoting almost directly from Esther 7. Zebedee, you'll find, is quoting directly from Esther 9, 17 to 18, and established, talking about why they celebrate Purim. Um, so Purim comes from the, the word meaning lots, like to cast lots, and it comes from the fact that wicked Haman, um, who is going to, who wants to kill all the Jews under um he, would, he goes to the king and gets the king to agree to let him exterminate the Jews. He casts lots to determine what day they're going to be exterminated. And Esther is, um, when Mordecai finds out about this, he goes to Esther, who's in the king's harem, tells his, his niece Esther that this is why she is in, um, you know, this is why she is made. This is her mission. This is what she was created for. Um, there's that great line, like, who knows if this is why you, you have come to the kingdom for such a time as if this. Esther has to go in front of the king to, you know, to plead on behalf of her people. But the the punishment for going in front of the king without being summoned is death. And so Esther puts on sackcloth and ashes and goes in front of the Lord and, and pleads with him. It says, you know, give me the strength to go in front of in front of the king and, and plead on behalf of my people. So she faces this death. She goes, and as we see in um, the opening, Zebedee kind of and, and Jairus kind of tell the story where it's actually not Mordecai and the, um, the Jews that are put to death on that day, but Haman is put to death on the gallows that were reserved for Mordecai. So we have this festival then of Purim. So it's, it's celebrated on the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, which um, then the, the book of Esther is read. And they, they talk about why they celebrate Purim. And as we see later in the episode, they do um, give money and food to the poor as part of the, the festival celebrations. We have some Bostonians with us. Hello, Josie and Jeff. I would love to go to Boston someday. So it's on my bucket list of cities. So um, I love seeing new people here. I love seeing old people there. So welcome very much. Um, So this was the opening, and I actually kind of struggled with why they chose. I I love how Dallas and the writers show us these Old Testament, you know, that the way they teach us. So what is Purim? Most of us maybe don't know what Purim is, so they're going to set it up at the beginning by showing them celebrating Purim, telling the story of Esther. But I struggled both with the timing, like is this just to show us now it's spring, possibly, um, so maybe that's the only purpose is to drive the narrative and say, okay, now we're in the springtime. Whereas the beginning of the season, we were in the fall. As I mentioned before, I have a, I have trouble kind of tracking how fast this time's moving in some storylines and how slow it seems to be moving in other storylines. Um, 
But so maybe the whole purpose of Purim of, of celebrating and, and introducing the idea of Purim is just to move the calendar along. Um, maybe it's to highlight the theme of God ultimately being victorious through our suffering. So Esther and, and Mordecai, their prayers are answered, even though in the midst of all of it, they undergo great suffering and they have to question God. Why? Why is there suffering? I just feel like the idea of Purim, because it's set up in the opening and he generally sets up something pretty important in the opening to, that plays later in the episode, I was waiting for Purim to be a bigger deal and it's not. It's mentioned once, really. And I just wondered, am I missing something? Why did they choose to do this? I feel like it could have been better done because I would have loved, similarly to the way they talked about tap, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Rosh Hashanah, I would have loved to see more of Purim and more about it and, and it woven better into the storyline and the theme. So I was kind of surprised. It, it seemed disorganized. This episode seemed disorganized to me. It seemed like it was a lot of threads put together to, 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 to because we needed one more episode to kind of tie stuff together, but we're also going to bring some new characters in. And this, like I said, this is one of my least favorite, um, one of my least favorite episodes. Uh, my mom pointed out that Peter did throw that pottery in the opening. That also confused me. So the little kid saw him, the little kid with like gyrus, like the little kid was going to throw it because he saw Peter throwing it. Was that it? And then later Zebedee in the next episode sees the broken pottery. Was there more to that? Or was it just Peter throwing his temper tantrum? The first part of his temper tantrum? Um, I don't know. I, so if, if anybody has insights into that, I, I kind of miss that. I also haven't rewatched episode eight again. I always like to rewatch them right before I do this. So maybe there's something I'm missing with Purim. But in season, the episode seven, I just felt like it was kind of disjointed. So we have Andrew and Philip coming back. Uh, remember, they originally were going to... Um, so Andrew and Philip are coming back from Decapolis. I found out from the writers, um, the writers behind the, the, writer, the writer's roundtable, um, the behind the scenes, that they originally were going to show more of Andrew and Philip at the Decapolis, but it got really long and bulky and kind of in the weeds. And so now they're just kind of showing the after effect. And I think that worked really well. I think that was the right decision. So we're getting the story of this disastrous attempt to evangelize the Decapolis. It's interesting to me that Philip is, um, Philip's the one freaking out rather than Andrew. Like we're, 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 we're used to Andrew freaking out, right? Andrew's kind of the high strung, nervous freaker, freaker outer. And Philip's usually like the laid back one and their roles reversed here. You have to put yourself in the apostle's shoes that, um, you know, it must be hard to preach to people who've not seen what they've seen. Right? They're going out and they're preaching these parables and they're preaching this message. Many people who are hearing Jesus' parables and messages saw it accompanied by signs and wonders. And so these apostles are having to preach this message that's, that's confusing, that's divisive, that's radical to people who are not seeing it accompanied by signs and wonders. And that takes a lot of faith. And it, it seems to possibly come out of nowhere. Um, these, especially to, as the word then gets to the Gentiles. So Peter and John, or sorry, Philip and Andrew take it to the outskirts. They don't take it to the Decapolis, but it gets to the Decapolis. And now the Decapolis is hearing it and these Gentiles are hearing it. So now they've gone. Um, and so it's, it's, um, I feel sorry for them. Right. And so Philip feels this great idea of failure. He says, we failed in our mission. The Messiah gave us his words and we didn't deliver. Yes, they didn't deliver success, but I don't know if that's what Jesus is always looking for, right? Um, I, if, they, if the message wasn't accepted, it doesn't mean they failed. And I think that's an important reminder for us as Christians. Just because someone doesn't accept the gospel doesn't mean that we failed to preach it. It means that person has not accepted the gospel. And it doesn't stop us from continuing to preach it. And so... Josie, absolutely. Like, this is the first time Philip was tested. Philip was always kind of the, um, he, you know, he followed John. You're absolutely right. He follows John. John causes the problem. But here it's, it lays, it, it's right at Philip's doorstep. That's a great point, Josie. That it's, it's Philip 
um, that has, he's caused the trouble and that's hard for him to take. I also, so number one, if it doesn't, if, if, if the message isn't accepted, it doesn't mean that we failed. We fail when we don't preach, right? When we don't scatter the seed, that's when we fail. That the seed doesn't take root. Ultimately, that's up to the soil, right? That's up to um, the person accepting. James, I'd love for you to, so James puts in the comments, it's pretty clear that Judas, that Judas doesn't have the right motivation for being an apostle. I'd love for you to explain that because I think we are getting more about Judas. Um, Judas is at home, right? So when they come back, Judas is at home and he's just listening. And I still like Judas at this point, but you know, do you think he's too much of a businessman? Do you think he's too shrewd? He understands the audience better than Philip and Andrew do. And I think that's an important thing in an apostle is to know your, when we preach the gospel, to know our audience. So this ex, this exchange with Philip, Andrew, and Judas are is really intriguing to me. So Philip is struggling because he's caused dissension. He doesn't think he's been successful. And I think it's also important for us as evangelists to realize, number one, it's, it's our failures if we don't preach it. Um, it's not if it's not heard because it's a two-way street, right? So if if... If we don't preach it, that's our failure. If it's not accepted, that's the failure of the people who choose not to accept it. Um, but our failure is in... So I don't think Philip failed here because Philip preached the truth. Did he fail because he wasn't completely successful? Did he not know? I mean, I think Philip did the best he could. And I think we also struggle with dissension. You know, he, he said, like, we caused a big mess. Dissension also doesn't mean they failed because... Christ's words bring dissension, um, as we've, we've talked about in, in earlier episodes. He says, I've come to bring not peace, but the sword. Like, his truth is difficult, and it will divide people. So, um, I think this whole scene with them is really, really interesting. So, they preach this parable of the banquet, and they, they recap it for us when they're telling Judas. It comes from Luke 14, 16 to 24, this parable of the banquet, it's also in Matthew, but they are telling the version that we find in Luke's gospel, where all these people have legitimate excuses. And Judas says, like, those sound like legitimate excuses. And they said, we're even getting heckled by our own friends, right? They are, in a sense, they are legitimate excuses. But that's the whole point. Jesus asks us to go beyond that, right? And so Judas is like, those sound like okay excuses. yes. But Jesus asks us to do even more. And in Luke 14, what Jesus follows his parable up with is the demands of discipleship. That you have to renounce possessions. You even have to renounce family. And so, you know, are we going to see Judas not being able to do that? Maybe. Um, but I, I just love the banter. I love the realness. And um, Jackie says, I think Judas is realistic and he has reason, right? He's thinking through this. I think that's that's right. I think... I see that, right, in, in Judas. He's just listening and he's saying, you didn't read the room, as Wendy just said in the chat. Judas says, you said this to a mixed crowd, so go out and find some leftovers did not exactly play well. And I love the repartee that we're seeing between the apostles. One of the, in the after shows, I don't always watch the after show, but I did this time, and uh, one of the writers pointed out, like, think about preaching this parable to people in America, a mixed crowd in our current climate. Like, I don't want to go to the party you're going. If you're going to be at the banquet, I don't want to be there. I don't want to sit next to you, right? When there's a when there's a divisiveness, a parable about unity and bringing everyone together is not going to play well, right? I don't want to go to that party if you're going to be there, or if or if so and so in a different you know belief system, political system. Um, lifestyle. I don't want to go to that party. I don't want to be seen at that party. I don't want to be seen with those people. So we're talking about the Decapolis, which, as I mentioned, is a, a very mixed. Um, it, 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 it is. It has. There's Hellenized Jews. There's there's Nabataeans. There 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 are um, you know Greeks. There are Syrophoenicians. So we have this kind of melting pot and hotbed for controversy. And so this is the parable they choose to to speak. I think it also reminds us of the radicalness of the parables. A lot of times we are so 
used to the parables. The parables are very familiar to us. Things like the prodigal son, things like who is my neighbor, things like the good Samaritan. They are very familiar to us to such an extent that they don't seem radical to us anymore. And this shows us, this reminds us of the radical message. We've become immune to it. But the parables were radical, and they should remain radical to us. They should remain demanding to us. James, you point out a really good point that in the Gospel of John, John says it's around Passover that Jesus multiplies the loaves. We're going to get to this, but what the writers have chosen to do is combine two feedings, the two multiplication stories. And I disagree with that. I disagree with that decision. So they've combined the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. And I don't think it was the right decision. And that's why they have the timing off in that. For them, it's Purim, which would have been, you know, not it's not Passover. John has the multiplication of the five lo- of the five thousand, the feeding of the five thousand at Passover. But what they've done is they've combined the two. So we're we're going to talk about that a little bit in a bit. Thomas is back, but without Rama. Um, Thomas is barely really in the episode. I thought it was an interesting like, it was just odd. Like that guy said, this episode seemed to pull a lot of things together and not seamlessly. It did give us a lot of good banter between the apostles. Like when Nathaniel comes in, I love Nathaniel. And he's just like, were you embarrassed? Because that's what somebody without guile would say, right? That's what, that's what Nathaniel would say. And um, so it does give us some good um, exchanges, but it just seemed very disjointed. So Thomas is back, but without Rama. The townspeople think that they're building weapons because of the amount of sulfur they've gotten for this vineyard, for this olive grove. Again, it just seems very scattered. I thought it was odd that when we left Philip and Andrew and Judas, Philip was like, yes, we're going to go find Jesus tomorrow. We're going to wait till the morning. And then while we're with the other apostles and Thomas is back, they come rushing in and they're like, where's Jesus? And um, I don't know whether it's the next day. Again, that it just doesn't seem to flow to me. Um, James's view, Big James says, you know, why are we going to worry about the Decapolis? Why are we going to take time with the Gentiles when the Jews here in Capernaum have been, you know, they're waiting to hear from him. They've heard him at the Sermon on the Mount. They formed this tent city. The Jews are waiting to hear from him. Why are we taking this time with the Gentiles? And that's an important viewpoint. Um, to his defense, Jesus did send them to the Jews, right? He didn't send them to the Gentiles when he sent them out. The Gentile mission will ha- will happen, right? They'll go to the Gentiles after the resurrection. So I, I think we like I think it's important that James voices what a lot of them are probably struggling with, right? Why do we go to the Decapolis? And Peter will kind of voice it later too. Like, why are we going to the Gentiles? Why are we going to this pagan territory? when our own people need him. And, but we see in the gospels that Jesus goes to both Jews and Gentiles and he will, he won't send his apostles to the Gentiles until he's, you know, really preached to the Jews and then he'll send them to the Gentiles, but he goes to both. So Matthew's studying the genealogy of Christ. Of course, it's another one of those little Easter eggs. If you get it, you get it. Matthew opens his gospel with the genealogy. So of course he's studying the genealogy. We have this beautiful scene between Matthew and Mary. So it starts in one scene where Mary just tells Matthew she's found his prayer tassels. He gets upset. And then later he comes back and we have this beautiful scene. We talked about the tassels last week. Um, We see them in in Numbers 15. We talked about it, sorry, not last week, in episode 5. So if you missed episode 5, that's when we talk about the prayer tassels, what they symbolize. they, they, They symbolize, they remind Jewish men of the commandments. And so we have that command in numbers to tie the tassels to the corners of their cloak. And we have this flashback where Matthew's telling the story of how he got these, these prayer tassels. So this man comes to his, his booth and he has bought his children's debt so that he can give them their freedom. So he's, he's taken on the debt, the tax debt, the debt to the Romans of his children, of his family members, so that he essentially can give his life for his family members and his family members can live in freedom. I think the um, the imagery is pretty clear, right? This man is a Jesus figure 
who, like Christ, is... And, and this is, um, you know, there's lots of different ways of talking about the atonement of our sins. Um, but Christ, you know, takes on, he becomes sin for us. And so that we can live with, he takes on our debt, right? Um, that would be a one way to speak about this atonement. And so I think it's a clear, um, idea. This is a Jesus figure, right? I don't know if you noticed. So his, he said his name was Matthew, son of Hezron from the tribe of Benjamin. So I thought this guy is somebody. I just didn't remember who this somebody was. And the little hint was that he's ready to meet his maker again. When he said that, I first thought of Simeon. And I, I think a lot of times of, of Simeon from the presentation in the temple and what Simeon had had been through, right? Like when Simeon sees Jesus, what then happens? Does he die right away? You know, so I thought, who is this Benjamin? But notice he says he's a shepherd. And I, I'm very excited that I knew who it was before I watched the after show, but in the after show, they, they tell you as well, he is in the very first chosen episode that started all of this. It's, it wasn't called the chosen. It was a, it was a Christmas, um, a Christmas movie that Dallas made for his church called the shepherd. It's long before the chosen happened, but he is in the shepherd. And so it's really beautiful. He gives a little glimpse when he says he's a shepherd and when he says, I'm ready to meet my maker again, this is a shepherd that has seen Jesus, um, that has met our Lord, that has met his creator in baby Jesus. So regardless of whether you remembered him from the shepherd or not, there were little clues to show you who he was. But I was very proud that then I went back and looked at the shepherd and I was like, there he is, Matthew. And so I thought that was really beautiful that they, they bring somebody back and, but regardless of whether you knew that from the shepherd, he says, like, I'm ready to meet my maker again. And there's this exchange with Mary and Matthew, because Matthew still doesn't quite understand the exchange, right? Matthew has had time to think about it, but this has spurred Matthew to faith, not directly. You know, he didn't take these prayer tassels and immediately put them on and change his life. But it was that beginning of that unsettling, right? He says like, this was a really unsettling moment. Um, he said, I kept, I kept them as a reminder of that man and a reminder of the sins against my people. And he says, like, this was a mysterious, unsettling thing. That he doesn't like mysterious, unsettling things. Well, if you remember in season one, that's exactly what brings him to Jesus is this unsettledness. He's seeing things that he doesn't understand that don't make sense. And he goes to his mother and says, like, what happens when you can't, you know, when you see things that don't make sense. Matthew can't, is having trouble grappling with that. Well, that, that was planted even earlier with him, um, it, with this man who, again, starts to unsettle things. Matthew wants everything figured out. So Matthew, the tax collector, has his future figured out, doesn't he? He's settled. He's comfortable. He's wealthy. He has planned for his future in ways that he sees his father hasn't, right? No, I'm going to be wealthy. I'm going to be comfortable. And here comes a man who is giving everything away. Who is, is going to, he's taken on this incredible poverty for the sake of others. He's exactly what Matthew is not, right? The sacrificial poverty that Matthew's not willing. Matthew's looking to the future with comfort. So it's really, I think this is a, a really, um, this is the beginning of Matthew's conversion. And Mary will tell him that, right? That, that, Math, that this is your dove. And she recounts the story that she hasn't told anybody of when she almost committed suicide and the dove woke her up and brought her to Jesus in a sense, right? And so Mary has to tell Matthew outright, right? The tassels, he didn't give you the tassels for the tassels, right? The tassels may be, may be expensive. That wasn't the point. Although what's up with all this old stuff? Have you, did you think that these tassels were really good for having been around since the first exile? I'm like, were they hanging out with the bridal? Like all this stuff looks really, they had really good preservation apparently. So these tassels are supposedly from the first exile and Matthew misunderstands and thinks that that's why they are valuable to him. They are the, you know, they're more valuable than gold, more precious than rubies, but he's not talking about the actual tassels. He's talking about his faith and Mary has to kind of unpack that for him. That at the end of his life, he was giving you his gift of faith that was most important. I love this quote from Mary to Matthew. And you, you, she's telling you, she's telling Matthew the advice that she learned from Tamar, isn't she? You felt unworthy, but 
that unworthiness brought you to Jesus. Yes, we're all unworthy. Jesus calls you. That's what matters, right? And so she's really giving him the advice that she got from Tamar. But she says, our lives have often been painful. So we think life's full of scarcity and not abundance. But then there are those times when out of nowhere, somehow the world expresses its longing to be whole. And suddenly God steps in. And we are pulled out of our blindness and we're invited into redemption. I think there's a theme here with wholeness. That when we suffer, we can look at life in scarcity. We begin to have these lenses on of like, there's scarcity, there's not enough. Life is suffering, life is hard, life is dark. And God wants to make us whole. God wants to say, no, even in the suffering, I want to give you life and give it to its fullness. I want to make you whole. And so he said, some, then there are those times when out of nowhere, somehow the world expresses its longing to be whole because it's broken. And it, it takes us recognizing our brokenness and desiring to be whole that the Lord's able to step in. And suddenly God steps in and we are pulled out of our blindness and we're invited into redemption. But we have to recognize our brokenness. And so Matthew has recognized his brokenness. Mary has recognized his, her brokenness. At a, at a certain time, Peter recognized his brokenness, right? At the beginning, we have Nathaniel recognizing his brokenness and pr- crying out to the Lord. So it's in the suffering that we recognize it doesn't, we don't have to live lives of scarcity. We can live lives of abundance. We have to s- get rid of that lens of suffering means God doesn't love me or suffering means there's not enough. No, God is enough. God is enough. And we have to see our brokenness and call out to him. Um, two little scenes that I don't, that were again, setting up for the next episode is Shmuel. So Shmuel's back. He's looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Um, you know, so there's been this, um, edict against false prophecy, you know, supposedly Shmuel's won and now he gets to go find Jesus of Nazareth. Well, it was all political move. Like nobody's actually like, he wants to go find Jesus of Nazareth immediately And, um, so he's starting to interview people. So we just have this little scene. I think one thing this scene reminds us of is that there were lots of false prophets. There were lots of messiahs. The, the time in the first century, that time was a time of heightened expectation. I've talked about this elsewhere. There were plenty of false prophets. In fact, Gamaliel and Acts will tell the Sanhedrin, right? Like we've had lots of people claiming to be the messiah and what happens? They fizzle out, right? They, they lead to their own demise Um, So there are lots of people, and that's just, I think, highlighting that. There's the temple scene, which, again, like, so Atticus apparently comes to the temple, not in the court of the Gentiles, right, because they get mad that he's there. I don't think this would have happened. I think there was a decent respect for the temple and the court of the Gentiles and the, the, the courts beyond. So there wasn't a huge court of the Gentiles at the temple. So David... We see under David the covenant beginning to expand and include the Gentiles. And an indication of this is that there's a court of Gentiles at the temple. So Gentiles can go worship at the temple. But they are, they are to remain in the court of the Gentiles. There's actually a sign um, when, you, when you go into the deeper recesses of the temple. It says, like, no Gentiles allowed after this point, And the punishment is death. So I don't think, not that they would have killed Atticus, right? They didn't have that um, ability. But it was taken very seriously, and so I don't. I just don't think that scene would have happened, and it kind of annoyed me. Anyway, Peter goes to the Roman district. Um, we know it's the Roman district because as he's walking by, we have this Latin inscription um, for for drinks. It's like a little tavern inscription in Latin on the wall, and then there's this woman, probably of ill repute, right at the tavern. So. This is kind of the Roman section they're, they're saying, and this is his way to kind of meet Gaius's family, for us to meet Gaius's family. Livia has clearly heard of, from Gaius of this, of Jesus, which makes sense, right? Gaius would have come home and said, you never believe what I saw today, or you'll never believe the unrest in the city. It's natural. A husband and wife would be talking about what's going on. He would mention this Jewish doctor who he's seen cure people. She would say... Maybe he can cure Evo, right? So this is a very reasonable conversation. Um, 
So it's interesting because you have to wonder, like, maybe Gaius doesn't feel like they can ask Jesus. He hasn't seen Jesus interact in a, like, to give miracles to Gentiles. So maybe only Jews can ask for miracles. So poor Gaius is, is struggling here, right? He, he doesn't quite know what to do. Livia clearly, I think, wants him to do something for Evo. And we have this beautiful, in there, you know, the scene's broken up into a few parts, but we have this beautiful um, discussion, you know, conversation. Peter clearly, you know, wants to help Gaius, I think. I think Peter has a soft spot in, in his heart for Gaius. And we find out in their conversation that Evo is Gaius's servant, right? We knew that. He's the son of Gaius's servant, but he's also Gaius's son. So I think, I could be wrong, but I think one of the reasons they're doing this is to combine Matthew and Luke's account of the healing of the centurion with John. So in John 4, so Matthew and Luke is where we find the story of the, the healing of the centurion. He comes to Jesus. He says, my servant is sick, but I'm not worthy to have you enter under my roof, but only say the word and you shall be, uh, my soul shall be healed. Sorry, my servant shall be healed. We say my soul shall be healed at Mass. So we have that, that beautiful, and Jesus heals him from afar. Um, I think they're probably, this is my guess, this is just conjecture, they're going to combine Gaius with the royal official found in John 4. So in John 4, a very similar scene happens. Um, Cana and Capernaum, the royal official's son, is, 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 is ill, and Jesus heals him from afar. Um, some scholars do say these are the same stories. Others say they're different stories. I have a feeling, especially based on the feeding of the 4,000 and 5,000, which they've combined, I have a feeling they're going to combine this. And this is the way they're combining it. That is it Gaius's servant? Yes. Is it a royal official's son? Yes. Um, so I have a feeling that's, that's what they're doing there. But I love Gaius. I love this storyline. And um, it is interesting. I've mentioned this before, but we had that the figure of Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod Stewart. There are some ancient manuscripts that actually the royal official in John 4, they say, is Chusa, which I think is really cool because that would explain why Joanna began to follow Christ. But that's, a, that's another, that's an ancient tradition. There's this beautiful, um, uh, I use that word a lot, I'm sorry. There's this exchange between Peter and Gaius where Gaius asks him why he says, Shalom, Shalom. And we get that word wholeness again, right? Just like Mary's talking about. Gaius needs complete wholeness. He is broken. And he needs complete wholeness. And he's looking for complete wholeness. And what's going to be the place where he acknowledges that and allows Jesus to step in? Right? We'll see. There's something we don't know about Gaius. And we have to remember that. Hopefully they won't drop that. But if you remember at the beginning of the season... Atticus indicated that there's something in Gaius's past. He indicated murder or killings or something. So we don't know everything there is to know about Gaius. So we shall see more, I'm sure. Finally, we get a Jesus scene. I know everybody is um, ready. They love their Jesus scenes. We don't get enough Jesus scenes, everyone says. And so here we have a good Jesus scene. Philip and Andrew come to him and say, you know, we messed up. They think they messed up. And Jesus says, what was your strategy? And uh, they tell him they told the banquet parable. And everyone's like, he told the banquet parable. And people got upset. And Jesus was like, of course they get upset with the banquet parable. Again, this radical nature of the parables. But Jesus reassures them. He says, boys, this is part of it. You try and carry heavy things and sometimes one gets dropped. But Jesus in his loving mercy is going to go to the Decapolis to clean things up, right? So to speak, he is going to, to say, okay, now, now we go to the Decapolis, but he tells, so I love this. I love all the scenes with the apostles. I think the apostles are, are really growing on me. Their, their exchanges, their love, their banter. Um, the scene, I didn't write it in my notes, but that whole scene with Matthew and, um, and Tad and Matthew and Nathaniel, and it's, they're just, guys and they're staying in character very well like that's such a Matthew thing to do to be embarrassed to have another guy see him you know putting you know in his underwear and it's just this really I think they're I love how they're managing to stay in character and grow in their relationship with each other and their relationship with Christ 
So Jesus tells John that he has to stay and wait for Peter. Why? Well, we're going to find out. But he says the success of this trip depends on Simon. The success of this trip depends on Simon. And John wants to do something else. And Jesus says, no, I'm asking you. He says, I'll do whatever you want me to do. And Jesus is like, I'm asking you to wait. Waiting on Simon is what I'm asking you to do, basically. And so John has to stay back. You know, Jesus reassures him it's not the violence he's worried about. He doesn't need their protection in, a, in you know, he doesn't need more bodyguards. He said the hardness of their hearts is the problem in the Decapolis. That's their problem. So we have to ask ourselves, why do we need Peter for this? And again, we'll, we'll find out. So the problem is the hardness of heart, and that's important. How, I think it's important for us to kind of reflect how it would feel to be John in this case. To be asked to wait for Peter. Peter keeps screwing up. Peter's a hothead. Peter hasn't been around, right? He seems to have been unfaithful in a sense because he's not at their meetings. Eden doesn't know where he is. He is distracted. If anything, so John doesn't know what's going on. And if anything, Peter looks like he's endangering their mission, right? He's distracted. He's not with them. And for to be told by Jesus to wait for him, and it, I think it's just a really good reminder to us that sometimes Jesus asks us to do things that don't make sense. Like, why do I have to wait for him? Like, I'm your beloved. Um, and why, like, why should I wait for this guy who doesn't seem worthy of this call? Um, I know a lot of you struggle with Peter and his character. And it, I think the other apostles are struggling with him, too. So what's, why do I, and there are all, there are always fellow apostles and and disciples in our lives that we struggle with, that we think I, I deserve that. Like I get, why do I have to, like, I should get to go because I've been faithful and I'm your beloved. Why do I have to wait for this schmuck? Um, And so there's somebody in your life probably that you have a Peter relationship with and that Jesus is asking you to befriend or Jesus is asking you at least to be nice to or Jesus is asking you to evangelize and you're like, why? Why do I have to waste my time with that person? And and Andrew, just put yourself in Andrew's shoes. Why do I have to wait for Peter? Why is that my job? Peter doesn't deserve this. Um, James says, it seems the disciple whom Jesus loved was a disciple with issues. They all seem like they have issues, don't they? I mean, it just all seems that they have issues. And James, I did want to go back to your comment about Judas. You're right. He makes a comment to Philip that they had to be smart. It wasn't time for war. And um, he does still seem to have, a lot of them do, right? This idea that the mission is is milita- militaristic. Um, and so a lot of the, a lot of it is misguided so you're absolutely right so peter doesn't even know they've left right john goes and he he, peter comes to the house and um you know zebedee says you're disconnected he's not whole right he's disconnected from jesus he's disconnected from eden he's broken he's not whole so we have that wholeness that completeness theme again i love that peter they say you could run and catch up with them and Peter's like, I'm not much of a runner. So some foreshadowing for John's gospel and the resurrection account, if you're keeping track. So they get to the Decapolis. And this is another, this is a place in the season where I think it's too late to start the storyline. I think there's, it's a lot. It seems very disconnected. There's a lot going on. We're meeting all these new characters. We met Leander. We met, now we're going to meet this Nashon, this healer. And I mean, maybe they're setting a lot up for season four but it I thought this was just really disconnected and I wish they would have so they need I mean spoiler for any of you who haven't seen episode eight I think it's well known episode eight includes the feeding of the 5,000 so this is where I have the problem that they've merged the feeding of the 5,000 and the meeting of the 4,000 so the feeding of the 5,000 we'll talk about more this more next week the meeting of the 5,000 is a Jewish audience. The meeting of a, the feeding of the 4,000 is a Gentile audience in De- the Decapolis, Tyre, Sidon, Decapolis, Syrophoenicians, all that. 
They are two separate feedings. Scripture scholars want to combine them. We'll talk about next week why I don't think they should be, I don't think they're the same event. And so in combining them, they needed some hungry people. They needed a backstory of why all these people are hungry. And so they've created this Decapolis backstory of why all these people in the Decapolis are hungry. And I just don't like, I just don't think it fits. I, I don't think it flows. And I'm being extra hard on them, I think, because so much of what they've done has had a good payoff in the end. So many of these stories where I'm thinking, where is this going? The payoff's amazing. And I, I've now set the bar really high in my mind of when they do something I don't agree with, I'm usually wrong. <laughs> and it's usually for a really good reason. And I don't think this is the right choice to make. So I wish they could have done the feeding of the 5,000 separately, end this season with that. And the whole Decapolis could be a whole nother thing. Um, so Leander, this Leander guy, the weirdo that broke into their house, <laughs> he's waiting for them. What's up with Leander's accent? Where's Leander from? For a while, it sounded like he was from Indiana, and then he sounded like he was from England. I, who is Leander? Like, what is Leander? Um, but there's this great scene with the mute, you know, the, the mute is healed. It's um, the afatata scene. I can't say the Greek. We find it in Mark 7, 31 to 37. It's the only place we find it in the Gospels where um, Jesus groans and, and says, be opened. Afafatata? Afafatata? Afafatha? Afafatha? I don't know. There's double PHs. Um, so there's this Mark scene, right? That So it again, he left the district of Tyre and went by way of Sidon into the dis district of the Decapolis. Okay, so we have the right place. And the people brought to him a deaf man who had a speech impediment and begged him to lay hand on him. This is Mark 7, 31 to 37. He took him off by himself away from the crowd. He put his finger into the man's ears and then looked up to, touched his tongue. Then he looked up to heaven, groaned and said to him, Afafatha, that is be opened. And immediately the man's ears were opened, his speech impediment was removed, and he spoke plainly. Jesus ordered them not to tell anyone, but the more he ordered them not to, the more they proclaimed it. So this is the scene we have here. It's interesting, you know, um, is it Philip that says, like, we have far greater problems than this man's problem? Well, do we? Because to this man, this is the greatest problem, right? Not to this man, this is the greatest problem there is. So Jesus, of course, cure, um, heals this man because... We have, you know, Jesus always, he is, like, this man is a symbol of everyone, right? So what's wrong with the people of the Decapolis? They don't hear, right? They're not listening. They're not listening to each other. They're not listening to Christ. And so because they can't hear, they also can't speak. Um, Josie says it's Telemachus, the future Mark. So I looked up Telemachus um, so it's actually Telemachus, which is a common Greek name. Um, it's in, um, is it the Odyssey or the Aeneid? I didn't write it down. But Telemachus is a Greek name. Um, the future Mark is going to be John Mark, who we haven't met yet, and I hope we meet. John Mark, the Apostle Mark. We did a Bible study in the Living One John One Bible, in my online community for scripture study. We did a Bible study on the four evangelists last month and John Mark is the son of Mary who another Mary who owned the upper room and so John Mark is going to be the evangelist Mark I really hope that we get to meet him so yes Wendy yes those who have ears to hear here right he says that before they leave um that's the title of the episode he says that before they leave and then he arrives and he gives this one man hearing and hopefully gives everyone hearing, right? Like the hope is, okay, this man is physically is physically deaf, but you all are deaf. And so here I've come to talk to you. I've come to teach you. Only those who have ears to hear will hear. He knows the message won't be accepted by all. So Nashon, again, we have this new character, the town healer. It seems too late to introduce these characters, but that's just me. Um, we don't really get to meet them. And I think that's a problem. Like I wouldn't have, I don't have trouble with, new characters who then have character development and have stories. But this is episode seven, and I just think it's... I know he's going to probably be in season four, but... We have the Nabataeans and the Syrophoenicians. So these are both groups that historically did live in the Decapolis. The Nabataeans um, are originally from Petra. Uh, Herod's mother was a Nabataean. Syrophoenicians. We have the great 
story of the Syrophoenician woman in Mark 7, 24, which in Mark, he's in that whole district. That's when he hears, heals the mute man. That's when he's going to feed the 4,000. And that's when he heals the Syrophoenician's woman whose daughter is um, possessed. And I'm really sad we didn't get that story. I think it would have fit somehow really well. But I feel like they got distracted by this backstory of the Decapolis and why all these people are there so that he can feed them. And that's why we're, we're missing out on some really great scripture stories. So that's a scripture story where she comes. He doesn't want anybody to know he's there, but they all hear about him. And he comes, she comes to dinner. She asks him to heal her daughter. And he says it's not right to give the food off the table to the dogs. And she banters right back with him and says even the puppies... Even the pets feed off the table scraps. So she's just asking for table scraps. And because of that great faith, he... And so it would set up with this theme, right? That he's first come to come to the Jews and only later will he come to the Gentiles. Because he says it's not first... He, he, he indicates to her, you, you have a time to eat later. I'm coming to you later. But she won't take no for an answer. And she's like, even the puppies get the table scraps. Not only does he feed her daughter, but then... He feed. Sorry. Not only does he heal her daughter, then he 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 feeds the four thousand, the pagan Gentile four thousand, and so it's a beautiful image of he has come for the Gentiles. It's not his primary mission right now at the beginning of his ministry, but he has come for them. And so he heals her daughter. He feeds the four thousand with far more than just the table scraps. Right. He he does the same miracle for the Jew Gentiles as he does for the Jews. So I feel like that was a big missed opportunity here when he's in the Decapolis. Then we have that last scene before we're going to get the big finale in episode eight, where Peter reveals to John his struggle, why he's been disconnected, why he's broken, because he trusted Jesus. He trusted Jesus. Jesus said that Eden would be safe, that Eden would be okay. Eden is means the world to Peter. Peter's a protector. And now he feels hopeless. He feels helpless. It's not, he hasn't been hurt. Eden's been hurt. And he trusted Jesus that she would be okay. And it's interesting. He still has faith. He said, I believe that he is who he says he is. And so he's not having a crisis of faith. He has faith. He's having a crisis of what it means to be a disciple and why they're still suffering. And I think that's really, so John tries to talk to him, right? You're not exempt. Um, He has good points, right? Jesus never said we would be without suffering, but Peter can't hear them. You know, life was a lot easier when we, when we were fishing. And John says, well, you know, this all could have happened when we were fishing, but you wouldn't have had Jesus. But Peter doesn't feel close to Jesus. Peter doesn't, Jesus didn't help him. He heals total strangers, he points out. But he let this happen to Eden. Even when he said Eden would be safe. And I think it's, I think if you say that you've never had the struggle that Peter's having right now, I don't know if you're being honest with yourself. If you haven't had the struggle, I think you're going to have the struggle someday. Because that's how we grow in our relationship with Christ, is we go through these dark nights where we know we believe Jesus. Like, I know who Jesus is. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. But I'm in a dark night where my Lord and Savior doesn't seem to be Lord and Savior for me. I know he's God. I know he created the world. I know he saved us. But where is he right now when I'm suffering. And our friends can tell us all these things about how, you know, you're not exempt from suffering. You know, Jesus is with you. There's all these phrases that they say, which are true. But in that dark night, it's very hard to hear them. And you suffered. You you have those questions. Why? Why does this happen? You know, when he says he heals total strangers, I don't know if you thought about James, but I, I would love Peter to talk to James to little James because he doesn't always heal. And that's what James had to struggle with. And that's what Peter's having to struggle with. What does it look like when the man that you follow, the man you've given everything to the man, you know, to be God seems to be ignoring you. 
seems to be allowing horrible things to happen to you. Great, great, great suffering. And so this final scene with Peter, I think, is is very difficult, but so realistic in the Christian life. And I think about the people who are watching The Chosen, who are, some of them, brand new to the gospel. So many people have come to the gospel through this show. And they may be... They may be avid, zealous Christians now, but suffering's going to come to them. The cross is going to come to them. And what do you do with it? Or they haven't become Christian because they're intrigued by Jesus and they want to believe Jesus, but they struggle with suffering. There's some great suffering. There's some great evil. Something's happened to them. And there's that question of evil. So I love that the, the chosen writers are using this age-old difficult, terrible question because we're all faced with it at some time and it's, we need an answer to it and there are no easy answers to it. My mom says, do you think that they were thinking backwards? What's our big finale going to be feeding the loaves of the fishes and so the Decapolis happens? I think that's probably part of it is that they needed a scene for the Decapolis. They needed a scene for the feeding. They needed that and so now how do we get the people there? Um, I could be wrong, but I think that is what happened. I just think there's other ways they could have still gotten to that big final scene. So that's all I have. Again, a lot of this really set up for that final episode, which we'll look at on Thursday, February 23rd, 3.30 here on YouTube, 3.30 Central Time. So join us for the YouTube live because I love to hear your comments. If there are any more comments, throw them in the chat because I love to hear questions and comments from you, what you thought. Again, I, this wasn't my favorite episode. I think a lot of it was just really setting up for that final episode. And there's a lot to talk about next time. So stay tuned. Um, we'll be talking about a lot. Um, Jackie says, do you find John wasn't sympathetic and tried to teach Peter? I, I think that's a good way to kind of look at it, that he was, and I think it's a good reminder to us that sometimes people just need to be listened to, especially people in the deep darkness who are carrying crosses. A lot of times they don't need to be told, you know, Jesus doesn't, have you ever heard Jesus doesn't give you more than you're able to carry or, which is false. Jesus gives you a lot more than you're able to carry. You're only actually able to carry it with him. So you have these kind of trite phrases that people say because they, they want to make you feel better. And sometimes you just need to listen. And I think as a church, sometimes we try to give people theological explanations and we really just need to sit with people and listen to them. So I think that's exactly what John was doing, which didn't help Peter at that moment. So thanks so much, all. I will see you all in two days as we look at episode eight. God bless.